This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. We have a nice lineup for you today. For this episode, we greet Miss Janice Sellers, the president of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon, located in Portland, Oregon. By the end of this episode, I'm hoping you'll learn what is truly unique about researching Jewish family history and that you'll want to join them in their mission to develop, preserve, and distribute Jewish genealogical knowledge and materials to others who may be searching their Jewish roots. They use a variety of media resources as well as ties with the International Association of Jewish Genealogical Societies. Hey, I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I am coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the original talk program on MicroStream Radio where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, associations, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. We love getting your emails, and we always respond. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited to share a recent discovery with you, a captivating book that caught my attention. In our recent program, episodes focusing on the remarkable state of Oregon, we delved into the history of pioneers who embarked on the challenging Oregon Trail journey. David Klausmeyer penned a compelling book back in 2003 that piqued my interest. It goes by the title, Oregon Trail Stories, True Accounts of Life in a Covered Wagon, and you can find it on Amazon.com. Here's a glimpse into what the book entails. Join the pioneers who dared to face the elephant as they traverse the Oregon Trail in pursuit of a new life, drawing from trail diaries and memoirs documenting this pivotal period in American history. Oregon Trail Stories provides a fascinating window into the 19th century American migration. During the mid-1800s, brave pioneers undertook a grueling journey across the Great Plains 
covering over 2,000 treacherous miles to reach the Pacific Ocean via the Oregon Trail, a monumental mass migration that shaped American history. These intrepid immigrants, in their letters, diaries, and memoirs, recounted the challenges of an uncertain future and the hardships of the trail, including the very real threats of illness and death. This book features a selection of these compelling narratives presented in the pioneers' own words, from the diary entries of a member of the Donner Party to excerpts from the memoirs of a girl orphaned on her family's westward journey, these documents vividly depict the difficulties faced by those foraging a path through the uncharted West. Despite the Oregon Trail's disappearance beneath the march of time, these stories endure, testaments to courage, endurance, and adventure in the vast expanses of the American frontier. For anyone with ancestors who traversed the Oregon Trail or for family historians researching this pivotal migration, Oregon Trail stories would make an excellent read or a thoughtful Christmas gift. I just wanted to share this valuable find with you. Now, in the upcoming episode of Preservation Oaks, we'll sit down with Ms. Anne Marie Amstad, Secretary and Museum Director, and Mr. Ken Funk, the Historian and Office Supervisor for the Sandy Historical Society in Sandy, Oregon. Since 1926, the Sandy Historical Society and Museum has served as the custodian and curator of the rich history of the Sandy area. The museum houses a wealth of information, including details about the founding family of Francis and Lydia Revenue, captivating displays on the mid-1800s logging industry, and a variety of other fascinating exhibits. Whether you're conducting research or seeking enjoyment, a library of historical data awaits. I'm eagerly anticipating this episode and the opportunity to connect with this remarkable organization. Should be a good one. Happy holidays, by the way. Welcome to our Christmas episode. At this time of the year and in this episode, our Lord teaches us once again to be inclusive in the spirit of love. Our guest today was originally scheduled for episode 55, but we needed to reschedule due to our old friend COVID. Once she got better, we scheduled for an upcoming episode, and it was this one, our Christmas episode. I am incredibly honored to have Miss Janice Sellers with us today because we can learn so much about Jewish genealogy and have an opportunity to share a few words and holiday wishes regarding Christmas. Now, Merry Christmas, everybody. Christmas holds a special place in the heart of the Christian community as one of the most sacred holidays. Similar to other religious celebrations, it's a time for us to unite and revel in our love for God and Jesus. Distinguishing itself from other religious observances, Christmas signifies the dawning of hope for the world. Hope comes in various forms. A desire to win the lottery or a wish that Aunt Juanita might forget making her infamous pickled cake for the family Christmas dinner. However, these are more akin to wishes than genuine hope. True hope is defined as a positive and optimistic expectation often linked to a circumstance or event that significantly impacts one's life. This definition aligns seamlessly with the birth of Jesus. 
Jesus embodies hope for the world, the hope that transcends mortal life. Through Christ, God has bestowed upon us the hope of eternal life. Without the birth of Jesus, such hope would be non-existent for us. Picture a world devoid of hope. Thankfully, today, we are blessed with tremendous hope. Christmas is the day we commemorate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the day God graciously gave His only begotten Son for us. The birth of Jesus symbolizes our journey back to God, our Creator. Jesus rekindles hope in the world, paving the way for us. When we embrace Christ, we embrace the message of hope proclaimed on Christmas morning with the birth of the Christ child. This birth of hope elevates Christmas beyond hymns, trees, gifts, and festival feasts. It is the divine sacrifice by God and His Son Jesus that brought hope to our world, the hope of eternal life for all who believe. So this Christmas, let us come together in joyful celebration. Let us extend kindness to others in the same spirit as our Lord and Savior. Let love abound among us, and above all, let us express gratitude for the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the gift of hope that Christmas brings to us. I'd like to personally say thank you for the email well wishes we received from Anne, Kay, Kelly, and Matt. Thank you so much for your comments. Much appreciated, and Merry Christmas back to you and yours. To our Jewish friends, I say shalom and a warm welcome to each one of you. For those of you like me who are new to Jewish genealogy, in this episode we'll embark on a fascinating journey into the rich tapestry of Jewish culture, a culture intricately woven with a history spanning millennia, resilient communities, and a profound connection to faith the Jewish people with a heritage as diverse as the lands they've called home have left an indelible mark on the world. At the heart of Jewish life lies a profound reverence for tradition and an unwavering commitment to family and faith. As we delve into the intricate threads of Jewish genealogy, we uncover stories that echo through generations, tales of resilience, perseverance, and the enduring strength of a people whose roots extend deep into history. From the sacred texts that illuminate the path of Jewish religious practice to the vibrant customs and rituals that define Jewish life, we find a culture that cherishes community, values, education, and the importance of preserving one's ancestry. Jewish genealogy, therefore, becomes a gateway to understanding not only individual family histories, but also the broader narrative of a people who have overcome adversities and triumphed in the face of so many challenges. So let us embark on this exploration together, as this incredible person, Miss Janice Sellers, helps us to unravel just a few of the intricate layers of Jewish genealogy each revelation a testament to the enduring legacy of a remarkable community. Thank you for joining us on this episode. All right, that being said, let's get the show snapping. Let's drink some tea first, some Twining's tea. Love Twining's tea. 
Now, here's a brief biography of our guest, Janice M. Sellers. Janice was elected president of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon in 2021 and has served on the board since 2019. She has been a board member of the San Francisco Bay Area Jewish Genealogical Society since 2006, where she also handles programming and publicity and is a life member of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Long Island. In her own genealogy, she is related to actor Peter Sellers and to John of Gaunt, son of a king and father of a king. At least that's what her grandparents told her. Unfortunately, they were both wrong, but that's why she's been researching her family for almost 50 years and is now a professional genealogist who is passionate about making sure she finds the right pieces to fit your genealogical puzzle. She specializes in Jewish, Black, dual citizenship, and newspaper research and has taught at local and international events. She previously worked in publishing as an editor and indexer and currently edits one genealogy journal. Her website, if you'd like to visit, is ancestraldiscoveries.com. Welcome to the program, Janice. Why, thank you. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Great. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this episode because I don't know much about Jewish genealogy at all. And so I'm really looking forward to learning something. Well, I've been looking forward to sharing that information with you. You know, I've never been to Portland. What are some of your favorite things to do in Portland? Well, one of my favorite things is Portland is situated right near the mouth of the Columbia River Gorge. And there's a beautiful site called Vista House. And you can go up there. It's elevated and you get this incredible view of the river and of the city of Portland. And it's this great combination of city and nature. And it's absolutely stunning. I bet it is. I've done some other episodes in Oregon and right around the Portland area and had an opportunity to look on my map app at street views and that kind of thing. It's, it's really, really beautiful. And your area is very beautiful. I'm very lucky to be here. I started wondering how large is the Jewish population in Portland? Well, according to some recent surveys, the total Jewish population in the Portland metro area is probably around 75,000. And maybe about 55,000 of that is in the city of Portland itself. Wow, that's pretty big. Not really that big compared to some other big metro areas like, say, oh, New York or L.A. Oh, yeah, New York. For a smaller metro area, it's it's a pretty significant number. Yeah, very cool. You probably have a lot of interest in the Genealogical Society, the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon then. Surprisingly enough, but not really surprising compared to genealogy in general. It's actually a fairly small number, but genealogy, it's funny. It's part of everybody's lives because, well, you have parents and grandparents, etc. But not that many people are actually interested in genealogy. But we do try to cultivate that interest in the area, that's for sure. Yeah. I know in the Mormon faith, it's incorporated into the faith. You you really are encouraged to do your genealogy. Uh, Is it that way in the Jewish faith? Well, it is, but in a different way. I know a fair amount about 
LDS and genealogy because I've been volunteering at LDS Family History Centers since the year 2000. And I have several good friends who are church members. And as you said, it's part of the religion. Even saying that, though, within the church, a lot of people still aren't that interested in genealogy. And they have other family members do their family history research. It is definitely a part of Jewish religion. You are encouraged to know who your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were. And a lot of that is a fairly standard type of cultural thing where you're supposed to honor your ancestors. In the Jewish community, it takes on special significance because of a lot of recent history of Jews being persecuted in the Holocaust where your ancestors were killed rather abruptly before the ends of their natural lives. Right. So the, that remembrance aspect takes on a special significance in the community. But it's been part of Jewish culture for a while. Okay, thank you for that. What's the history of your society? Well, the society was started in late 1889 with, as usual, a small group of people who were interested in really studying their genealogy and their family history. And it has been around since then steadily. Um, It's a fairly small group. I don't know what the total maximum number of people was, uh, but within the past, say, 10 years or so, we've been very steady around 50 members, which sounds really small compared to that community of 75,000 in the greater metropolitan area. But genealogy and studying it is not something a lot of people really want to do because It's easy to be told about your family. It's harder to actually go out there and find the information. But we are a dedicated 50-some-odd people, I will say that. Well, very cool. What inspired the establishment of the society in Oregon and Portland? There were people around that time who were really getting into genealogy. Some of it was a little longer-term after effect, after roots. A lot of people in this country suddenly became interested in studying their family history after Roots, which was 1977. And so this is definitely, we started later than that, but people suddenly, the advent of the internet and everything's like, wait, we could do this too. And so small group of people got together and started the group here. And one of the interesting things about the geography of Oregon is the vast majority of the population in the state is centered in Portland. So while we are the larger of the groups around, there's also a smaller Jewish genealogical society farther down south in the Willamette Valley, because not everybody wants to drive all the way to go to Portland. (laughs) Okay, interesting. What is unique about researching people of Jewish ancestry versus others who are non-Jewish? Well, you know, every group has something unique, not just Jewish. Because one of my specialties is Jewish research, I'm a little more knowledgeable about that, and I even teach about what's unique about researching Jews. One of the biggest things that makes it more difficult once you get a little farther back in time is for Ashkenazi, or what we think of as Eastern European Jews, most of them did not have a fixed surname until the beginning of the 19th century which means the way that you get to do most other research, you find the family name and you go farther back in time, we don't get to do. Before that point, the primary thing you have is that people went by patronymics. So I would have been Janice, daughter of 
Lynn, my father's name, since you only had a fairly limited number of given names that were used commonly, that means you could have a lot of people with the same name. How many Moisha bin lasers could there be in one area? Well, there could have been a lot of them because Moisha and laser, very common Jewish given names. So that's one of the most difficult things to overcome. But some other aspects are things like in many countries in Europe, Jews were not considered citizens. They were a separate group. There was a lot of persecution. So people tended to move from one area to another to escape persecution. They were singled out for special taxes and things like that. So overall, there, there are several aspects of Jewish ancestry that are different from others. But if you persevere, you can overcome a lot of them and still find out a lot about your family history. Sounds really difficult. It is difficult. Certainly, I'd say from a lot of the research I've done, it is one of the more difficult groups to research. But that, as I said, that was that's particular for Eastern European Jewish right. research. The, the other major branch of Jews today in the world are Sephardim, which is people who originated from the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. The big defining thing for them in modern times is when they were all or most kicked out of Spain and Portugal because of the Inquisition. But in some ways, it's easier to research them because they had fixed surnames far earlier than Eastern European Jews. Okay. So they may have moved from one country to another, but their names in general either stayed the same or they translated them into the language of the new country. So it's a very different research experience. And in particular about Sephardim in this country, Seattle is the largest Sephardic community in the United States. And there's a lot of Sephardim also in the Portland area. So whereas a lot of Jewish genealogical societies in other parts of the country may not emphasize Sephardic research as much, it's important in our area because there's such a large community around here. So it's good to know what the aspects of Sephardic research are and how they compare to Ashkenazi research so you can help people, which one of the big things about our society is helping people research their Jewish ancestry. So it's good to remember that different types of Jewish communities had different practices. All through the 1800s, you, you would not have had a surname, a specific fixed surname. Well, primarily through, through the 1700s and into the beginning of the 1800s. Oh, 1700s. Around the beginning of the 1800s, the beginning of the 19th century, is when most countries started imposing fixed surnames on Eastern European Jews. Okay. Primarily for taxation purposes and also so they could conscript people into armies because yeah. there was a lot of fighting in Europe at that time. As people said, no, I want that piece of country. No, we want to keep it. Oh, let's go have a war. Um, so beginning of the 19th century, i.e. beginning of the 1800s, is when you see fixed surnames being imposed on the Eastern European Jews. Wow. So up to then, no, you didn't have a fixed surname. Uh, the surviving cemeteries didn't have surnames on the tombstones, which is what we're accustomed to in the United States. They would just have had the person's given name, and then that person was the son or daughter of father's name. Wow. And in the records, it would have said... Janice, daughter of somebody. Right. The records also would not have had a fixed surname because the people didn't have them. 
And even when governments imposed them, that wasn't something that the Jewish communities really accepted because that's not their choice. They were used to being Moshe ben Lazer. So even after they were imposed, a lot of people didn't really pay attention to those names. So sometimes the governments of the various countries had to restate the law and say, no, no, really, we want you to have a fake surname. Yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe 10 years later, one more time, no, no, you have to have a fixed surname. Fine, I will have a fixed surname. But also because of the way that they did that, you might have three or four different surnames in one family. Sure. Um, we still don't really know as much as we'd like to about how that selection and imposition of surnames was done. But in some areas, what we believe is that if you were all in different houses, so say I'm the patriarch and I live in this house, but my son and his daughter live in that house, and my daughter and my son-in-law live over in that house, that's three different houses, you might all three get different surnames. And so that's another aspect of researching Eastern European Jews. You don't have, an, uh, even when you have surnames, they're not necessarily consistent in a family. So it's not like I can go out and find all the Smiths in this little town and they're related. No, because maybe that family has the name Smith and Jones and Taylor. Huh. It's all the same family. They're all the same lineage. But because of the way that the names were given, you get three different surnames. Oh, that's very cool. Another fun thing to make your research difficult. Yeah. Wow. And, and oh, when and we're fact, talking Eastern else, Europe... Something else that makes it difficult, I mentioned earlier, the tombstones usually didn't have surnames on them either. Oh. It just had your patronymic. So I would be Janice, daughter of Lynn, with no last name, oh. on the tombstone, just like in the records. Wow. So when we're talking Eastern Europe, we're talking the Baltic countries? Well, Baltic also, though, um, it, Europe... In uh, east, northern, northeastern Europe in general, so Russian Empire, de depending on the time period, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, okay. um, Ukraine at some points was independent, but then of course Russia had eaten it up like it's trying to do again. Right. right. Um, what we now know as Czechoslovakia. Uh, what else is up there? <laughs> My mind is Romania, all um, Hungary, yeah. Romania, all those countries which at different times were parts of different empires are all the ones where you find what is now classified as Eastern European Jews. And those are the people that we're talking about without fixed surnames. Okay. Got it. And those Jews that were in Eastern Europe and, and those countries came originally from well, the, the some Middle of them East. came from Germany. In fact, the, the word Ashkenaz relates to Germany and that's, saying that they came from Germany. Some of them actually did come from the Sephardic countries after they were expelled. Some of them ended up working their way across, maybe went up to the Netherlands first and then into Germany and then into Eastern Europe. So you do find Sephardic Jews and Sephardic history in Eastern Europe. Um, some of them may have come from the Middle East right. in earlier periods or maybe later because Jews did do a lot of trade. And so they traveled. Right. And so, but the, the main source of what we, at least based on what we've been able to determine now, we think most of them came, ended up coming from the area of the Germanies. And like I said, the word Ashkenaz is 
for Germany. Okay. Now, does your society offer educational programs or workshops to help people improve? You mentioned that you do offer some education. How does that work? Well, at this point, especially post-COVID, mostly what we do is programs that we do over the air in Zoom meetings, and it we try and cover different aspects of genealogical research. A lot of what we do is focused on Jewish research. So as an example, recently we had somebody speak about researching Galician Jews, and Galicia was a province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which after World War I, it was split into two pieces and half of it went to Poland and half of it went to Ukraine. As far as the Austro-Hungarian Empire is concerned, Galicia was where you saw the most significant number of Jews leaving Europe and coming to the United States. So lots and lots of Jews who immigrated here trace their roots back to Galicia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in fact, in early periods, if you see Austria as a place where somebody says he was from and that person's Jewish, the first place I think it was going to be Galicia. We recently had a speaker talking about just Jewish Galician research, which is a whole subject all to itself and barely covered the tip of it in an hour and a half talk. But we also offer broader topics in Jewish research like Jewish newspapers or Jewish vital records or the history of Jews in Europe and general genealogical topics also, vital records research in general, immigration, naturalization, things that are not specifically focused on Jewish research, but definitely are relevant to Jewish research. Prior to COVID, we used to meet in person. The good old days. I'm sure many people remember them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we had the same kind of programming, but we also offered what we called helping hands programs, which we would meet in some location, often a library. And we would invite people to come and we would help them one-on-one with their research. So they could say, okay, I want to research, I want to figure out where my great-grandfather came from. And we would look over whatever information they had and try to find more documents to help them pin that down. So we've shifted most of our education to online. We finally had another helping hands. When was that? I think about four months ago. And a few people attended, but what we have discovered is at least in the Portland area, a lot of people doing genealogy are still very, very hesitant to do things in person. So almost everything we do is a presentation online and people are welcome to, everybody is welcome to come. They're open to the public and you get to ask questions, but we haven't really gotten back into doing one-on-one workshops to help people yet. People are still too nervous. That is just a very inspiring work that you're doing. How well, far back you. have you helped somebody go? Uh, I don't know how even how far back the records go. Well, depending on where your people were from, you're going to find differences in how far back the records go and also differences in the types of records. So in Eastern Europe, most of those records that specify people by name and you can pick them out, a lot of them peter out around the early to mid-1800s. I have a great-great-grandfather I've been able to determine was born roughly around 1858, 
And it's possible the earliest document I will ever find for him is his name in a 1904 Russian voters list. Just yeah. because the types of records available in that area are not as common or don't name people back to that patronymic problem. If I could find something early enough for 1858 that might have listed a birth, I'm not sure if I could pick them out. It would it might be difficult. If you're researching Sephardim, which is mostly Western Europe, different kinds of records, much better record keeping, and not just for Jews. Eastern Europe didn't necessarily always have really good records in general, except for church records. So a lot of it will depend on your specific family, where your family was from. In general, if you have Sephardic ancestry, you're going to have much better chances of success in finding your people and records than if you have Ashkenazi ancestors. Have you been able to find out where your great-great-grandfather was buried? I know where my great-great-grandfather was buried because he immigrated to the United States and is buried in Brooklyn. Oh, oh, excuse me. Goodness. He's buried on Long Island where almost everybody from Brooklyn and Manhattan is buried because they did like San Francisco and said, oh, we only have a little bit of land and cemeteries take up a lot of that land. We're going to make up a reason to get rid of all the cemeteries. So most of the cemeteries from Manhattan and Brooklyn are farther up Long Island. Okay. Wow. But it, it, I have no idea at all where his father was buried. Right. I know his name or his given name because it's part of my great-great-grandfather's name in the Russian style, your middle name, quote-unquote middle name, was often your patronymic. So I have his patronymic. I know his father's name. And that's all I know about his father. That is so interesting. That research has got to be very frustrating at times. Frustrating, but also fulfilling when you find something. Yeah. And that's what you keep, that's what keeps you going. You want to find one more piece of information about your family. And when you find it, you're excited. You do the genealogy happy dance. And then you start, okay, what does that let, lead me to for the next one I can try to find? Well, that leads me to the next question. Can you discuss the role of DNA testing in Jewish genealogy and how it has impacted research within your society? Well, DNA testing in Jewish genealogy, and particularly for Eastern European Jews, is another one of those frustrating things. Jews tend to have what is called endogamy, which is when you have a fairly small number of people in a limited area who intermarry. So you are related in more than one way. You have more than one ancestor in common, and those ancestors are often on more than one of your family lines. So maybe your great-great-great-grandfather had six kids, but you're descended from three of them in different ways because you have cousins marrying each other within the community. Oh. And before people freak out and say, oh no, cousins marrying, that's horrible. Well, not really. First cousins marrying, especially if you do it generation after generation, yeah, that's bad. Especially if you have some kind of recessive genetic problem like, oh, the Habsburgs, where you have... Wait, which Charles? Was it Charles V? Who basically drooled all the time. If you intermarry too much, close relatives, very, very bad. But if you're second cousins intermarrying, you don't have those kinds of problems. And that's what you ended up with. You were related to other people in the town, but not necessarily very closely. But what it does for DNA testing 
is it tends to show that people are more closely related than if you could actually document everything. I found one site online which was giving advice to people who were looking for their biological ancestors if they were adoptees that said, if you're Jewish on both sides, particularly Eastern European Jewish, add two to the number of generations that a DNA data bank will tell you. So if you register with Family Tree DNA, which heavily marketed to the Jewish community, and it says that you and somebody are third to fifth cousins, probably you're more like fifth to seventh cousins because you have multiple ancestors in common. It also mentioned in passing that, oh, if you're Ashkenazi Jewish, you will probably never be able to determine the actual relationship once you get past third cousins. And that goes back to that lack of documentation in the Eastern European Jewish community. Wow. So not the first thing I recommend to people when they're doing their genealogy. No, do not do DNA first, because most of the time, not going to help you very much. My worst case, I have somebody I'm related to her, shows the DNA, five other people in her family. And we have absolutely no idea where we connect. None. I do not know as much about DNA testing for Sephardic Jews. I know there's intermarriage in those communities, but I don't know if the endogamy problem is as bad as with Ashkenazi Jews. So I don't know if it's as frustrating. But generally speaking, I tell people if they want to do DNA testing, go ahead, but don't expect it to advance your research very much. Until on the consumer level, we have better ways of refining results for endogamous groups. DNA testing generally is not going to help you get much farther back. Right, right. Well, that makes perfect sense because Jewish people would marry into Jewish people, mm-hmm. right? Then there are, there are other endogamous groups that have the same kind of problem. Mennonites tended to do the same thing. They stayed in a fairly closed community and intermarried. Some black communities after emancipation and the end of the Civil War, if they stayed in the same area that they had been living already, a lot of times ended up intermarrying within that small group. So any endogamous group, is going to suffer from the same problem in general with DNA. If you have paper documentation to help you, then that will go a long way toward making that DNA testing more useful. Depending on where they were, Mennonites and Amish do have some paper documentation. Eastern European Jews, blacks in the South after the end of the Civil War, you might not have the same kind of documentation, therefore very frustrating. On the other hand, there you can work around it, but it takes a lot of extra effort and you really have to crunch the numbers with the DNA. You can't just say, oh, look, this guy's my first cousin. Most people aren't going to show up that close. So you have to work at it. But people do find answers. It is not the easy answer that the DNA testing companies promote it as. Right. It just sort of gets you started. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of general advice would you offer to somebody who's just starting their journey into Jewish genealogical research? The advice I would offer to someone who is just starting their Jewish family history research is the same I would recommend to anybody starting. Document all the information you already have. Start with yourself. 
what do you know about the family? Your birth date, your parents, then your parents' birth dates, where they were born, their parents' names. Everything that you can come up with all that you already have within the family is where everybody should start. Look at all the documents you have in your own home, in your relatives' homes, your siblings, your aunts, your uncles, your parents. Get copies of everything. Get copies of photographs. And then start analyzing that. And if you don't have documentation, go out and find the documentation. So if your mother tells you what day she and her father were married and you don't have the marriage license, go out and get a copy. Maybe mom remembered the date wrong. It happens. Maybe mom remembered the year wrong or is fudging a year because, well, maybe mom was pregnant before she got married. Find documentation to support as much of the information you have been given. That's where everybody should start. After that, then you can just look for more documents about your family. Find them in the census. Figure out, oh, great-grandpa says that he was born in Russia. Okay, now you start documenting that too. Fantastic. And do Jewish people have family Bibles? There are indeed Jewish family Bibles just the same as Christian Bibles. And a lot of the Jewish ones also have a page in them to write down your family events. If there was one in your family, you may not know about it. Maybe somebody else in the family got it. One of the best things to do for everybody, Jews and others, contact other relatives. Whatever you have in your family, figure other relatives have the same kind of information but they're not going to have the exact same documents. Maybe if you talk to all your cousins, you'll find out that's the cousin who got the family Bible. Because if there are seven kids, only one kid can get the Bible. Right. And there's, there's no way to know if there was anything like that until you do find your cousins and other people in the family. Because if you don't have it, you got to ask somebody else. Yep. Sage advice. Thank you very much. Janice, I'd like to provide the contact information for the society. Listeners, it's the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon. You can find them at the website at sites.rootsweb.com backslash tilde O-R-J-G-S. You can also email them at jgsoregon at gmail.com. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 19736, Portland, Oregon 97280. You can phone them at 971-266-0005. You can visit the Feldstein Library at Congregation Neve Shalom. The address is 2900 Southwest Peaceful Lane, Portland, Oregon 97239. And you can phone them at Neve Shalom at 503-246-8831. All right, Janice, it's time for a break for a few minutes. I could use a break also. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages.
day to everyone listening. Share and preserve your Jewish family heritage by joining, contributing, and volunteering with the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon. Visit the website at sites.rootsweb.com backslash tilde o r j g s to delve into the details of this invaluable nonprofit organization or reach out via email at j g s oregon at gmail.com. Membership comes with a range of benefits, such as discounts on DNA tests through Family Tree DNA, access to enriching workshops and lectures, participation in member meetings, collaboration with like-minded individuals on a quest for Jewish roots, and exciting learning opportunities. We encourage you to consider making a donation, becoming a member, and getting involved today. You'll be glad you did. Shalom. This is Janice Sellers, the president of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon. I hope you had a happy Hanukkah, and I'm wishing you that from Portland, Oregon. And now, the gypsy fortune teller. The gypsy fortune teller. Hello? Hello? Is the gypsy of the house in? <laughs> Hello? Sweetheart, I am your friendly neighborhood gypsy. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Madame Beiter, internationally famous clairvoyant, fortune teller, mystic, palmist, astrologer, and caterer. <laughs> Yeah, on Fridays I make fortune cookies. <laughs> now, how may I sign you with my supernatural powers? Well, I'm not really sure. I'm the bashful, darling. I also read cards, silly, bumps on the head, crystal balls, in Sahara Spaniel. <laughs> you can help me. I must contact my dear departed grandmother. Can you hold us young and bring her back so that I can talk to her? Let me ask a question. You got five dollars? <laughs> yes, I do. Then I'll get in touch with her immediately. <laughs> Could you please hurry, madam? I'm very anxious to speak to my grandmother. Just a second, my dear. After all, I haven't got a direct line. Besides, I haven't summoned the spirits yet. Quiet. Hello. Yes, it's really me. 
Then tell me one thing, grandmother. Anything, my child. When did you learn to speak English? <laughs> oh, boy. That's got to be one of the funniest things I've ever heard. From the album The Yiddish Are Coming, The Yiddish Are Coming, Betty Walker and Carol Corbett, when did you learn to speak English? You'll get this recording by Alex Dreyer, a philosophical approach to the question, what is a Jew? Here's ABC newscaster Alex Dreyer. And now, in the context of our time, we pose the question and frame an answer. What is a Jew? Well, we think we know. Whether he calls himself an Israelite, a German, a Russian, or an American, he is a man with a special kind of backbone that has been tempered by travail and straightened and hardened by an unrelenting determination to be free. And because he is free and he is strong, every Jew stands taller and prouder today than at any time in the history of recorded man. What is a Jew? I'll tell you. He's a tired old man, squinting his watery eyes as he bends over needle and thread in a corner tailor shop in an American city. A tall, sun-bronzed young zealot working in a kibbutz in Israel. A gifted musician performing in a European symphony orchestra. An ordinary family man with no medals or high-water marks in his life. But yet each is different from his fellow man. And for thousands of years, that difference was turned against him. Today, that difference has meant the difference between survival and death. To me, a Jew is neither a specific ethnic or religious or cultural designation. To me, a Jew is a special kind of man, whatever his race or color or religion. A man who has learned the bitter art of survival and the ability to endure adversity with dignity. A man who has dared to be different when the costs of differences sometimes were life itself. But he is no member of a super race. And for dark periods in history, men who thought they were members of a super race believed he could be exterminated. I sat in rooms as a foreign correspondent in the blackout hole of Berlin during World War II and talked with members of one supposed super race who thought to practice genocide against a people much older and wiser than themselves. And as they mechanically mouthed the philosophical insanities that had been programmed into them by a madman, this reporter, a Hawaiian-born Roman Catholic of German-American parentage, mentally and morally became a Jew. Yes, I did. For to me, a Jew became more than just a member of a particular minority group in a specific place and in a specific time. He became a cause, and it had a name, freedom. Freedom of the individual spirit to express itself according to the dictates of its own conscience. Today, the wandering Jew wanders no more, nor does he wonder who he is or what he is. 
He stands like a beacon light in the world that has often been darkened by the shame of racial and religious hatred. He glows inwardly and outwardly with the knowledge that while he is imperfect like all of his fellow men, he has given the world an historic lesson in survival. Survival with dignity and confidence and courage and grace. Whether intellectual prince or peasant, today's Jew has done what millions who went before him tried but could not do. He has proved to the world that to be a Jew is still something special and something different. But the artificial inferiority complex that was laminated on his psyche by centuries of oppression is gone forever. It was blasted away by the rise of Israel. A tiny state in a vast hostile land that seems to be all muscle, but has left room for much heart. And yet this same home that beckons the homeless from all over the world continues to hold out to its historic enemies friendship with one hand while it clings to its rifle with the other. And it is our view that it is the hand that offers friendship and not the hand that holds the rifle that eventually will end the current troubles in the Middle East. Today, strong, proud, free, and determined Israel is more united than ever before, and it belongs not to the Jews alone, but to all the world, because in our view, it is a flesh and blood statue of liberty. And it is in this context that we salute and honor Israel. The say is a proud American acutely aware of his own nation's bloody battles for survival. We recognize you for what you are, a brother in an imperfect world, striving for what we strive for, the dignity of all men and their inherent right to be free. Israel has caught the torch of liberty, and to her we say, hold it high. And let no force on earth ever dim its light much less extinguish its flame. Alex Dreyer, his narration of What is a Jew? And that was two excerpts from KMPX San Francisco from February 1968 with host Mike Schweizer. The first one was The Gypsy Fortune Teller, The Yiddish Are Coming, by Lou Jacoby and Players. And the second was What is a Jew? by Alex Dreyer. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Janice Sellers, the president of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon, located in Portland. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Janice. Why, thank you, Sean. It's good to be back. Janice, can you kindly share with the audience an overview of the communities you serve, the variety of your membership, and the mission and objectives of your society? 
Well, the communities we serve, mostly Jewish, not everybody. And it's people who live in the Portland area who are researching their ancestry, which most of the time is not from Portland or even from Oregon, but also people from other areas who do actually had, maybe they had one person in their family who went to the Portland area or Oregon in general, and they're trying to find out more information. So we serve both of those. However, both of them will end up having started somewhere else anyway. They may have ended up in Oregon at some point, but that is not where the family originated. So while we do have local information and help people with that, most of the people we're talking to really are researching where their people were from before that point, maybe even before they came to the United States. So we we are prepared to help anybody anywhere in the world, depending on what they're looking for. Most of our membership currently is people with Ashkenazi ancestry. There are some with Sephardic ancestry because the Seattle area in particular, largest Sephardic community in the United States, and we have quite a few Sephardim people with Sephardic ancestry living in the Portland area. But most people have Ashkenazi ancestry. And the mission and objective of our society, you know, it's one of those things I always forget exactly how we decided to phrase it. The main thing we're doing, though, is we want to help people research their families, research their Jewish ancestry, and be able to document that. So we collect information where we can. We try to share information. We have some information on our website. We have the library that we have mentioned before at Congregation Neve Shalom in Portland. So some of the information we have collected is there. We have an email list that we share information with people about new information posted online, presentations, especially in this day and age of Zoom, online presentations that people are invited to attend everywhere around the country and some in other countries. So any way we can think of as far as sharing information, sharing resources, we try to do that as much as possible. We have ways people can contact us with requests for assistance, whether they're local or outside the area. We have a website. We have email. We have a phone number. Talk to us. We want to help you with your family history research. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Now, we read your bio. And it gave us a little more information about you for the audience. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to do what you do now? Well, I was very fortunate because my mother and my grandmother talked about the family while I was growing up, and I actually paid attention. I was the only one of my siblings who did. So I remembered all these various stories that they told me. And what really started me on doing genealogy research for my family, it used to be a standard assignment in middle school for students, usually eighth grade, but sometimes a little before or after. You would get your little purple mimeograph sheet with a four-generation family tree, and you were supposed to document your family tree back four generations. Okay. And I still have that piece of paper from when I was 13 years old. It no longer has the special mimeograph ink smell, which I know younger generations don't know what I'm talking about because something off a photocopy machine does not smell the same. Right. But if you're a certain age, you remember that purple mimeograph smell. 
That's what it smelled like when I got it. And I still have it. That's what got me hooked. I started documenting, writing down everything, interviewed in all my relatives I had nearby. I wrote letters to my grandmother who lived in Minnesota, who told me about her part of the family. That was the, the real genesis. And I just stayed interested. And so now I've been researching my family for almost 50 years, which to me is amazing. And I love it. It's something that keeps my brain occupied. It's puzzle solving because nobody's family is exactly the same. Yep. You may have similarities, but the names are going to be slightly different. The locations at the birth. So it's a new puzzle every single time. And I love solving puzzles. Fantastic. Thank you for that. What was your personal big find in genealogy? Oh, my goodness. That is always hard. I know one that I was really excited about and unfortunately proved my grandmother wrong. She had told me this great story about when she was born. Her mother was pregnant with her. This was right after the end of World War I. And supposedly, her uncle Willie came home from the war. And that was where we had the big pandemic that affected the entire world with the Spanish flu. And supposedly, Uncle Willie came home and got her mother sick. And so she had the flu and she was pregnant. Oh my goodness, what are they going to do? They rush her to the hospital. The story I was told is that she had a lung removed, finally was able to give birth to my grandmother. And when my grandmother and my great-grandmother were okay after that, my great-great-grandfather went out dancing in the streets. So it's a great story. I'm still working on proving that. But part of what she told me was that Uncle Willie died before she was born, after having infected her mother. Well, as I'm doing my research and I'm looking for the family in the census, I found what looked like the family in 1920, the year after my grandmother was born. And there's somebody there named William. Wait a minute. Maybe Uncle Willie didn't die before my grandmother was born. She was wrong. I found his death certificate. That actually helped me solve so many other problems. But just finding him was one of those, yes, he was alive for the census. Hooray! <laughs> and I did. I got up and did the genealogy happy dance. Yeah. I think everybody, I, I found one of those in my own where I was told something by my ancestors. and. They, they wrote it down. Here's exactly what family lore was, and it proved to be totally wrong. Mm -hmm. yep. So not only was she wrong, but finding him led me to other records. So I hated having to tell her she was wrong, but I was happy she was wrong in that instance. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that had to make you very happy. Now, did you do research for other people? I Obviously. absolutely do. In fact, I've been doing that for almost 20 years now. Which people that you researched in your own or other trees have you found yourself attached to because you know them so well? Way back when I first started doing research for other people and was thinking about becoming a professional, one of the big recommendations I kept seeing was that you should volunteer to research friends or extended families, family members, and see if you actually like doing it. So I ended up researching the families of every single person I was working with in my office. And I really got into them. I still remember information about all of their families. And even at the time, they used to joke, I knew their families better than they did. And I still remember all that information. 
I, I just, I get invested in each and every family. Want to find all those details. Remember how the families connect. One of the funniest ones, one of the ladies I worked with, she had had a cousin research the family 50 years previously and then share the information. And the, one of the family names was Drake. And they were always told they were related to Francis Drake. Well, I had to bust that bubble because there's a site for the Drake family name. And they have a whole section related to Francis Drake explaining, no, he's not related to any of us. In fact, he didn't even know his own grandfather when he was growing up. So even you remember the bubbles that you burst, I think, particularly <laughs> well, because people are disappointed. And you hate doing that. But most of the time, it's better to tell them the truth. Absolutely. So with regard to the society, what's coming up on the horizon for the society? Surprisingly, right now, one of the biggest things for us is trying to get ready to go back to in-person meetings. It, it sounds really kind of deflating at this point, but since everything we've been doing except that one helping hands meeting for the past, oh my goodness, three and a half years has been online, we really have to think about how we're going to do that. So that's really where a lot of our planning is going. How do we want to approach it? How do we convey this to the community? What do we do if they still don't want to come in person? Can we do hybrid effectively? Yeah. I think a lot of other smaller societies are actually going through that right now for the same reasons. It's hard to bring people back when they've gotten used to being able to just walk over to the computer, turn it on and hop, there's the presentation. Yeah, But we found out you don't network the same online as you do in person. So we're, we're figuring out ways to try to get our community back to being an in-person one where you can talk to people and, oh my goodness, we're cousins. That doesn't happen the same online. That is true. So what are you planning to do, an event or something like that? Well, we had the one helping hands and we had a few people come, but it was also a very small number. We're trying to figure out a good presentation that should be a good draw to people. Say, come on, you get to meet, you get to hear the presentation for this in person. You get to meet the person giving the presentation. We're actually thinking a very basic concept, polling our community and saying, hi, we'd like to do in person again. If we do in person, are you willing to come? Yeah. If we offer it as hybrid, do you think you're more likely to do it? online and just stay home or will you come if you're on the fence what would make you come we don't want to have the event if we're not going to get anybody to come but it's so much more enriching if you can talk in person and actually see faces than one tiny little face on a black background in zoom nothing against zoom zoom has done incredible work and for a new company they stepped up very quickly when COVID hit, and I totally credit them for that. But I want to meet people in person again. I really do. I think you're, uh, you're right there with a lot of societies right now. So what are some of the most memorable moments or experiences visitors have shared after visiting the society? Probably one of the most memorable was pre-COVID when we were meeting in person. We actually had a couple people connect at a meeting and find out that they were cousins. That's one of the reasons I really want to get back to in-person because it, you just don't talk to people the same way at a Zoom meeting. You start the meeting, you have your presentation, 
And that's the end of it. And then people, even even before the end of the presentation, they're they're clicking off and they're going home. Yep, that's true. Whereas they could get up and socialize, have an hors d'oeuvre, have some wine, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, you, ha- you bring little snacky bits. They sit there and they munch on a cookie and some lemonade and they start talking to people. Oh, wait, your family's from that same area? Hey, wait a minute. Do we have any surnames in common? That doesn't happen when you're just doing Zoom. Right. You're sitting there. Oh, you're eating a cookie. You're going to turn off your camera so no one has to watch you eat. And now you're not interacting with people. Okay. Makes sense. Janice, what kinds of genealogical services and resources are available at the Feldstein Library? Well, the library is open a few days a week at Congregation Nevis Shalom. We have, I think it's about a thousand books there related to Jewish genealogy. And also we have some journals, so research information specific to different areas. We recently acquired the entire catalog of the Galizianer from a group called Gesher Galizia, focuses on research in Galizia for Jewish ancestry. And we recently purchased one of every copy of their journal, and that's going to be going into the library. So people who are researching various areas, but maybe don't know yet for sure if their family was from there or don't know how to research that area, you can come into the library, use the resources that way. We don't actually offer genealogical services at the library because the librarian there is not a genealogist. But we have members of our society who are also members of Neve Shalom, which is why they were willing to house our library there. So that way it's open to the public. People can come in there and look at the information. If you are a member of our society, you can actually check out books and take them home. And then, of course, we would like it if you would return them, but doesn't every library. Even if you're not a member, though, you can actually go to the library and look at books while you're there. Very cool. A lot of great resources. And I know on your website, I found a list of all of the resources available in a PDF form. That's true. Now, that is going to be revised soon. We recently found out that the internal catalog the library had, uh, somebody hacked it. So they have just recently finished or just about to finish recreating the entire catalog from scratch. And at that point, we will make sure we update our listing on our website. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. What kind of funding model supports the society? What are your funding goals in 2024? Currently, the only real funding we have on a regular basis is our memberships. So when people join the society, They are directly helping us find speakers who can give presentations on the various Jewish genealogical topics, um, acquire things like I just mentioned, we got the Galicianer issues. So when people join as members, that directly translates into things that are going to turn around and help you do your research. We don't actually have any other funding. We are very small and don't know anybody involved in grant writing or those types of things. So other than that, it's when people make donations beyond their membership. And occasionally we get a surprise. Somebody did that once. Apparently the person works at Costco and we received a check out of the blue from their agency as a donation to the society. So we appreciate those also. That's like a matching gift? Yes, it was some kind of a I'm still... It was very confusing at first because it came from some organization we'd never heard of. And we're going, why are we getting this money? And as I investigated, I found out that that was the agency 
that handles donations for Costco employees. So somebody at Costco, we don't honestly know which person, but if you're listening, thank you, donated some money through the Costco process, and then we got the check. Fantastic. But that, that's all we have is we have membership money when, it, when people join as members, and if anybody decides they want to donate some money to us, that's our funding. We're a very small but very passionate society. How much are membership dues, and are there levels? There are indeed levels. A standard membership for an individual is $23 and has been that for several years. If it's a family, which is two or more people at the same address, that's $30. And we really do want to encourage younger generations to join and to start learning about family history research. So if you're a student, it's only $10. And all of those are good for a calendar year, standard year, January through December. And those, all of those, because the benefits that we provide are non-tangible and because it's a small amount, all of that is tax deductible in the United States and any further donations above a membership level, also tax deductible. Okay, fantastic. You mentioned one of the benefits as you get checkout privileges from the library. Are there any other benefits of being a member? There are some. We now publish a weekly newsletter, which has information about our upcoming presentations and events and online presentations and information sources from all around the world. Members actually get that a day before non-members. We have lots and lots of non-members on our list, but the members get it first. So if there's a restricted enrollment for an event, they're going to have the opportunity first. Our meetings are open to everybody. They're free. And now, currently, still on Zoom, but that, that's a member benefit, but it, everyone else benefits from it also. We do have an ongoing discount on DNA tests with Family Tree DNA. And while I still don't recommend DNA as your first step, it can't hurt. You can find closer relatives that you didn't know about. Information about that discount is available on our website. Currently, we do not have any membership area on our website that's password protected. So anything we record is actually available to the public. Now you do have access to the library, as Sean just mentioned, you can check out privilege. That means you can check out a book like any regular library and take the book home. If you're not a member, you cannot take things home. You can still go to the library and read the information, but you can't take it home. We have on our website that people can post their family sites if they're doing family history research and have created a website. And one of the bigger benefits now, we have a help desk. One of our members has volunteered to help people with their research, and that is a member-only benefit. If you want to have that kind of assistance, you are welcome to join as a member, and then you can email our help desk and tell them your thorny problem, and we'll see what we can do to solve it for you. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Can you talk about some of the nuts and bolts of the library, like what are the research hours and can I bring a camera and are there any restrictions on copying? Do you have a copy machine and so on and so forth? Okay, the, the hours currently, it's open three days a week, Tuesdays 9 to 3, Wednesdays 2.30 to 8.30 and Sundays 8.30 to 2.30. Okay. Anybody is welcome to come in during those days. The world being what it is, and it, it, it is a Jewish campus, there is security available at the synagogue. So if you're nervous, 
there is somebody there just in case something happens. And within that context, it works like a regular library. There are no restrictions that I know of on your being able to take photographs of books. There is a copy machine available. There's no restrictions on that. Pretty much the way copyright is now, you can copy a small amount of a book for personal use. That's perfectly legal. If you were to try to copy the entire book, well, that's not legal. It's also not very nice. So I don't recommend you try doing that. There's nothing that you can't bring with you. There's no lunchroom or anything like that nearby, but the synagogue does have an open courtyard. So if you wanted to spend several hours there, you are definitely welcome to bring a lunch or a snack, take a break, go and sit outside, hoping it's a very nice day. It's a gorgeous day today. The sun is shining. The sky is blue. What I've had somebody tell me, it's a convention and visitors bureau perfect day. That's This is the kind of day they go out there and they take the photographs to promote an area. Fantastic. However, that said, it's winter coming up. It rains in Portland. So you might not want to sit outside soon. But it is a library. You're not supposed to eat or drink in there. The right. librarian definitely welcomes people to come in and use the facility. Librarians in general, like people to come in and use the library. That's why they went into that field. It's not a particularly busy library, though, so almost any time you go, you really shouldn't have a problem getting help, sitting on the computer, figuring out where the books are you're looking for. All right. Thank you for that, Janice. Very much appreciated. Do you do any outreach or education within the community? The, the outreach we do currently and a lot of this, again, relates to the post-COVID world, we send announcements to various of the local Jewish groups, not genealogical, just Jewish in general, to let them know that we have events going on, the online presentations, and welcoming any of their members to attend. We don't track that currently, so I don't know how many people we get from the local Jewish groups, but we make sure the information is available to them. And we hope that they are publicizing it to their members. And we also post on various Jewish message boards in the area that have calendars of events coming up. So again, we make sure the information is available to people. Okay, fantastic. You do any work with school children? At this time, we are not doing work with school children. A lot of schools are still a little careful because of COVID and also just because of Unfortunately, lots of negative things that happen at schools. A lot of them are hesitant to have outsiders come in. We're working on stepping up that kind of outreach, though, maybe having a special event geared to school children as opposed to adults so that we can try to get them interested in family history. I, however, I have to admit, am one of the people who doesn't think that that's the most effective way to get people interested because kids, generally speaking, don't care. Right. My experience, what I have found, and this is where I want us to do more outreach, when people marry or settle down and start having their own kids is when most of them start having more of an interest because they suddenly go, I don't know anything about my grandparents. How can I tell my kid if I don't know that? Yeah. So I think we should be doing more outreach to 20 and 30 somethings because that's now the ages where they're starting to have kids. Okay. Fantastic. That makes sense. What kinds of volunteer opportunities does the society have for members and the public? Currently, our main volunteer activities are things like serving on the board, helping with the administration of the society. 
in the past, we have done things like going out to a cemetery and documenting all of the tombstones there. And we've also done some transcription work. We want to get back into doing those types of things because a lot of times, if you have somebody who's kind of interested, that will help boost their interest because now they're actually producing something that is tangible. They can look online and say, I helped with that. And it helps other people with their research. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Listeners, it's the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon. You can find them at the website at sites.rootsweb.com backslash tilde O-R-J-G-S. You can also email them at jgsoregon at gmail.com. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 19736, Portland, Oregon, 97280. You can phone them at 971-266-0005. You can visit the Feldstein Library at Congregation Neve Shalom. The address is 2900 Southwest Peaceful Lane, Portland, Oregon, 97239. And you can phone them at Neve Shalom at 503-246-8831. Okay. What kinds of things are available to do on your society's website? We have on our website several stories that people in the local area have shared with us about their ancestors from the area. We have a lot of historic photos of the Jewish community in Portland area. So we have it not necessarily helpful as much for research, but it gives you an idea of what the Jewish community was like in this area. There's also information about our upcoming programming. So the online Zoom meetings that we're going to be hosting in the future. We have an archive of all of the old PDF issues of what we used to publish as a society newsletter with a lot of people's own stories about their research or going back to visit their home countries. All of them except the first two years are on our website. Speaking of our website, while the Roots web address will still be good in the future, I do want to say we're working on a new one. Not only is that website pretty old and, and not of a style of what people are accustomed to nowadays, but Roots web is owned by Ancestry. And at the end of this year, everything on RootsWeb is going to go to read only. So we have been working on creating a new website. This address will still be good as read only, and we will have the new address of our website posted on there so you can go directly to where we're going to have all the information that we're going to be maintaining in the future. Fantastic. That's good. So it's underway, and they'll have it, and you'll have a new one. Any idea when that new one will be available? Well, we have to make it available before the end of December, because otherwise we won't be able to edit the page on RootsWeb to point them there. Yeah. Okay. So we have a deadline, and we're we are the webmaster and I are actually going to be meeting this evening. We're working on that. We're going to have mostly the same information. We're going to port it all over, but we hope to add new beneficial information for people. Some of the basics you expect to see on a website, we have information about how to join, how to donate money. We don't actually have anything for purchase. We used to have a, an introductory book to Jewish genealogy, but it hasn't been updated in a while, so it's not really fair to charge people for it. Right. The historical information we have relates to the Portland area, and it's wonderful to read. Unless you're specifically related to those people, 
probably not helpful for your research, but it still gives you a flavor of the Jewish community here. We do offer PayPal connection there. So if you want to join or if you would like to donate money, you absolutely are welcome to do so. Currently, the only other social media we have, we have a blog, mostly used for posting announcements about our upcoming presentations and information about joining as a member. We are thinking about venturing into Facebook. On the other hand, Facebook is only really good for information today because try to find old information on Facebook. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. It's it's not really geared for that, so I don't really chastise them for that, but it does help to send out more information. We're thinking about venturing out there, haven't quite gotten there yet. Okay, thank you. Yeah, on Facebook, you just have to scroll through everything. Yeah, not fun. Janice, can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the society that you want members to know about and support? Well, from our society itself, one of our most urgent needs is simply more members so that we can do more presentations for the public. And also we can get back into doing things like documenting cemeteries and more transcription work. We are a very small society. As with most genealogical societies, a lot of our membership is definitely older and they may, they are helping support us by staying members, but they are not necessarily into volunteering their time. We need more volunteers. We need more people on the board to help us go into the future and to help outreach to younger generations, whether they be kids in school or the 20 and 30-somethings I was alluding to earlier. That's good. Thank you. Janice, it's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. Okay. I look forward to that break, and I look forward to coming back and talking with you some more, Sean. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Greetings. We extend an invitation for you to join the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon and actively contribute to their mission of uncovering your Jewish family heritage. Explore their website at sites.rootsweb.com backslash tilde o-r-j-g-s or reach out via email at jgsoregon at gmail.com to learn more about this invaluable nonprofit organization. Membership offers a host of benefits, including discounts on DNA tests through Family Tree DNA, access to enriching workshops and lectures, participation in member meetings, collaboration with like-minded individuals on a quest for Jewish roots, and engaging learning opportunities. Consider making a donation, joining the community, and becoming a member today. 
This is Stacy Gosling, the president of the Winnishik County Historical Society, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. This is Linda Rogenkamp, treasurer of the Onega Historical Society Building Committee, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Carrie Eilers from the Cedar Falls Historical Society, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Oh my God. I think I've had a bit too much history. I think I've been thrown into an alternate reality. Sort of a parallel universe kind of thing. Hmm, no, I think it's just that I'm identifying so much with the people of the past. Excellent. This is kinda nice, knowing how things really work and using history to make better decisions for the future. I'm kind of digging this. Wow. I love history. Oh my goodness. Okay now, that's much better. Let's keep on listening. Wherever you get your podcast groove on, you can get all the history you can eat anytime with Preservation Oaks. Join other listeners at preservationoaks.podbean.com and let us know what you think by sending email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Nine out of ten family historians agree Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. studios of KDYL in Salt Lake City, high in the Rocky Mountains, the National Broadcasting Company takes pleasure in presenting for your early evening enjoyment the soft, mellow music of Bia Woodbury and his orchestra. Janice Don, Bob Reese, and Joe Kirkham will be heard as featured vocalists. But first, a few words about our products. This is the time of the year when good fellowship holds sway, when people get together at friendly gatherings to share good cheer and good things to eat. And when the call is for good food, give them Zion kosher meat products. Treat your guests to the ever-welcome pleasure of plump, tender Zion skinless frankfurters. Add to the joy and good cheer of the evening with the tempting tang of Zion salami and bologna. The full, rare flavor of Zion pastrami and corned beef. Yes, make the occasion a memorable one by serving delicatessen and by serving the best, the finest, the most delicious you can buy. The whole inviting family of pure, wholesome, appetizing Zion kosher meat products. back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Radcliffe, and we're here today with Janice Sellers, the president of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Janice. Thank you, Sean. What are we all still going to be talking about? 
Well, I want to know what's the best way for people to connect with someone at the society if they have questions. The best way to connect with our society is by email. Our email address is jgsorgan at gmail.com. And there are several members of our board who monitor that email on a regular basis. So somebody should get back to you fairly quickly if you contact us that way. Fantastic. Thank you. Is there any other information or message you'd like the community or members to know about? I have to admit, this comes from my perspective as a geek genealogist who really likes researching family history. I would encourage everybody to research their family history at least some so you know about where you came from. We are happy to help you research your Jewish ancestry in general. And a lot of us have experience with other aspects of genealogy. So depending on the circumstances, we are even happy to help you with researching other kinds of genealogy. But I definitely want you to do that research. Find out about your family history and share it with your family. That's great comments. Thank you. Reflecting just a bit, how do you think your members, volunteers, and the community view you and the society in terms of benefits and value? I think our members mostly think of us as a resource that they are happy to support so that there is somebody available to help with Jewish genealogy. We have a fairly small group, and any group is only going to have a fairly small percentage of people who volunteer. But I, I think our volunteers enjoy being able to share their time and help other people research their family because the people who volunteer are the ones who are dedicated to that concept. Family history is something that we should know about and that we should be sharing with our family members. So the fact that we exist and that gives them an outlet to be able to do that, I think they really appreciate. The community members who are interested in family history definitely appreciate the fact that we're here, that they can write to us and ask questions. Since so much of what we do is actually at no cost to the people who are enjoying the information, I'm sure that they definitely appreciate that aspect of it. And I hope that that's something that our society is able to maintain. Thank you for that very much. I appreciate that. And I hope so too. I I share those comments. Janice, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. You are clearly an expert in genealogy and especially in Jewish genealogy. And I've learned a lot about Jewish genealogy. I know it's just barely scraping the surface, but it's just so interesting. I had a great time meeting you and chatting with you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for inviting me to be on the program. I had a wonderful time talking with you, and I'm glad we were able to spend it. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Miss Janice Sellers, the president of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. This episode has been like having a wonderfully delicious cake and ice cream at the same time. 
It's been one of the best Christmas gifts I could get because it's given me a chance to learn so much and ask myself questions about Jewish life and genealogy that I otherwise probably wouldn't have. The most excellent part is that we all got to learn from a consummate professional, such as Janice Sellers. She is just outstanding. The excellence and passion with which she operates is self-evident in everything she does. You're all lucky to have her, and my hat is off to the wonderful volunteers that keep the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon fulfilling its mission and helping people every day in so many ways. Thank you all so much. The Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon's current priorities are getting new members, getting new people to join the board of directors, and getting new people to volunteer. Now listen. There's approximately 75,000 Jewish souls in the Portland area. Please, folks, join the Jewish Genealogical Society, volunteer, and especially donate, donate, donate. You all have a fantastic genealogical resource there, and it can get so much better with some of your love and attention. In addition to learning your culture and religion, you want to learn your family heritage and lineage and then also pass that on to your children. It's just as important. Do yourselves a favor and start to do that today. The Society is supported 100% by memberships, donations, and volunteers. Please help support the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon today. Janice reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the Society, so you know where the funds are going and what the priorities are. Please help the Society achieve those priorities. One last time, here's the contact information for this wonderful Society. Listeners, it's the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon. You can find them at the website at sites.rootsweb.com backslash tilde O-R-J-G-S. You can also email them at jgsoregon at gmail.com. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 19736, Portland, Oregon, 97280. You can phone them at 971-266-0005. You can visit the Feldstein Library at Congregation Neve Shalom. The address is 2900 Southwest Peaceful Lane, Portland, Oregon, 97239. And you can phone them at Neve Shalom at 503-246-8831. Okay? Okay, if questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the Society via the contact information provided. If you're a listener researching your Jewish ancestors in Oregon and beyond, and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the Society. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Society is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. This is Sean Ratcliffe, and I think we can all agree that the Jewish Genealogical Society of Oregon, located in Portland, is without a doubt one of our nation's preservation oaks. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Cymbal Bird, 8-Ball Audio, Musical Smile, Music Dog, Snow Music Studio, Rem's Tunes, and Scott Holmes. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. 
It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. I truly wish everybody listening a very Merry Christmas. This is Sean Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.